Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. And This is a case I've wanted to cover since I started doing the podcast. I think it's one of the best representations of investigators building a case without the benefit of a lot of physical evidence. The show CSI became a huge success during its debut season in 2000 and roughly two years later this case became worldwide news. And with the internet in full swing at that time, I believe Lacey Peterson's case was the birth of the armchair detective movement. Now, as a disclosure, this case involves a crime against a pregnant woman and her unborn child, and listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Railroad travel in the 1870s required regular stops for the steam-powered locomotives to fill up on water and fuel. These railroad stops sometimes produced a few associated homes, and if the area supported it, a town would grow within a few years. Between Sacramento and Los Angeles, California, one of those towns in 1870 needed a name. A railroad executive wanted to name the town after a friend of his, but that friend claimed he was too modest to allow that to happen. The executive obliged his friend's request, and when a Spanish railroad employee heard the tale, he exclaimed loudly in Spanish, Modesto, which is Spanish for modest. Another railroad executive heard the word and decided the town's new name would be Modesto. The city grew steadily over the years and currently has a population of roughly 220,000 people. It is known for its agriculture, especially its wine, as it is home to the world's largest winery, E&J Gallo Winery. Attached to the winery, the Gallo Glass Company is the largest wine bottle manufacturing plant in the world and roughly 5,000 people work for the associated companies. While some might assume that the picturesque city located in a valley between the Sierra Nevadas and the coastal mountains is a low crime area, it actually ranks higher in crime when compared to other like cities. But Modesto's most famous crime is one that is still a topic of discussion 20 years later. This is the case of Lacey Peterson. Lacey Denise Rocha was born on May 4, 1975 in Escalon, California. When she was two, her parents divorced, and she moved to Modesto with her mother and siblings, but the kids still spent weekends on her father's dairy farm at Escalon. Her mother remarried, and she had a close relationship with her mother, stepfather, and her father. Lacey was a cheerleader in high school and attended California Polytechnic State University, where she majored in ornamental horticulture. And as far as I can tell, that means, like, lawn sculptures and mazes and that kind of stuff. Uh, Just not a degree you normally see. And Scott Lee Peterson was born on October 24th, 1972 in San Diego, California. Scott was the only child from his parents' marriage, but he had six half-siblings from his parents' previous marriages. He 
He took to golf as a child, and by age 14, he could beat his father on a regular basis. He attended the University of San Diego High School, where he golfed alongside future pro Phil Mickelson. Scott and Phil both went to Arizona State University, where Scott had been awarded a partial scholarship for golf. He was said to be a good golfer, but he couldn't compete with future pro Phil, and Scott got kicked off the team after taking an underage team member out drinking. After the incident, he transferred away from ASU and enrolled at California Polytechnic State University. And while attending school, he worked part-time at a cafe in a nearby town. One day, he was given the name and number of a woman who frequented the cafe to visit a friend of hers that worked there. Scott had caught her eye, and soon Scott and Lacey started a dating relationship. Lacey was head over heels in love with Scott and told her mother that she had met the man of her dreams and planned to marry him. Scott's ego would present itself shortly after meeting Lacey. A former girlfriend, who worked with Scott at the cafe, said that she broke up with Scott after 18 months of dating. She said when she first met him, he seemed to be the perfect guy. He was driven, romantic, and exciting, but after a year and a half, he no longer wanted to do anything and seemed to have lost his motivation. She said when Scott and Lacey started dating, Scott would purposely bring Lacey to the cafe and ask to be sat in the ex's session so she would see them together. The ex said she believed Scott was trying to make her jealous, but the ex-girlfriend admitted that she didn't care. She was actually happy that Scott had moved on and seemed to have found his spark again. And this is one thing we're going to see about Scott as we go through the next uh, couple episodes here that's, that's dedicated to this case. Uh, he definitely seems to have that adrenaline relationship stuff going on. And, and what I mean by that is there's some people out there that it's the thrill of the beginning of the relationship. It's that getting to know each other, the, the puppy love, the honeymoon period, whatever you want to call it, that period when, when two people meet and, and you can't be apart from that person. And there's, there's a lot of desire there, a lot of, a lot of physical desire, a lot of emotional desire, and a lot of motivation on both people's parts to be the best person that they can be for the other person. And if you're that type of person that requires that constant desire for you, when that stuff starts to die out after some time period, a guy like Scott can quickly lose his motivation, especially if he feels like he's not desired anymore or, or whatever it might be. And so he gets dumped by this woman and, and Lacey shows up very shortly after, wants to start dating him. And so not only does he get a high off of this new relationship with Lacey, he's bringing Lacey to the restaurant, asking to be sat in the ex-girlfriend section because now he thinks he's going to be this desirable object for two different women. And he's just going to feed off of that. And what he doesn't realize is what this ex-girlfriend is saying is she dumped him. She's moved on. There's no jealousy or anything along those lines sometimes there is obviously it has happened before where somebody dumps somebody and then when you see them with with somebody else there's jealousy there's there's anger there's desire built into that jealousy or anger but in this case it doesn't sound like that was what was going on but it definitely to me it feels like that's where scott was going with this whole plan and and it's something we're going to see as we go on here with scott and his 
relationship issues, that's the nice way to put it, we're going to see he has this constant need for something new in his life, something, something that desires him. And speaking of ambitions, when Lacey and Scott first started dating, Scott still aspired to become a professional golfer. But as the relationship with Lacey turned more serious, he realized he needed a solid career and shifted his focus to getting a business degree. And this is something we're also going to see with Scott is he has this desire to have this quote-unquote carefree lifestyle. He wants to be a professional golfer, and with that comes a lot of travel. We all witness what happened with Tiger Woods and the multiple women that he hooked up with while he was married and, and what that did to his relationship and, and his, I guess, image uh, during that time period. Now, most people would say he's recovered, but if you if you look at everything, that was what Scott wanted. He wanted that life where he was able to just golf and have no responsibilities but at the same time, he's got this need to be in relationships with women, need to be desired by the, these women that he's in relationships with. And at some point, he has to decide which one is going to be his future. And at this point in his life, he decides his future is with Lacey. If he wants to, and Lacey wants a family, she wants a solid foundation under her feet. And that's not going to come from a from Scott chasing this professional golf lifestyle. And so she's probably going to give him some type of an ultimatum saying, hey, if we want to get married and have a family and have kids, you've got to give up this professional golf stuff. you got to go get a business degree. Either that or he decided to do it on his own. And after dating for two years, Lacey and Scott moved in together. Lacey graduated in 1997, and that summer they got married in a nearby resort. Scott had one year left of his studies, and while he focused on school, Lacey worked full-time. It was during the senior year of college that Scott had his first affair while married to Lacey. The couple were living in separate locations while he finished school and Lacey was working a job a couple of hours away. Scott told the woman he was single, and she found out otherwise when she walked into Scott's bedroom to surprise him one day and found Scott and Lacey in bed together. Another woman claimed Scott dated her while they were classmates during his senior year, and she only found out about Lacey when Lacey kissed Scott in front of her at graduation. Both of these affairs would be brought up during the trial, but the women didn't testify as far as I could tell, so the validity of these stories can't be confirmed. Strangely enough, the affairs would be used by the defense, but more on that later. After graduating with his degree, Scott and Lacey opened a sports bar in the town outside their alma mater. They ran the sports bar called The Shack for three years before deciding to sell the bar and move to Modesto to be close to Lacey's family and start a family of their own. They sold the bar in 2001 and moved into a house they had purchased in the late 2000s in a middle-class neighborhood in Modesto. The location was perfect with a nearby park and highly rated schools for their planned family. And so this, again, is, is something that a lot of people do uh, as we approach 2001, 2002. Scott is going to be roughly 30 years old. Lacey's going to be in her late 20s. And this is the time period. They're, they're a married couple. They're going to want to have kids. Like most people in America, they want to have a two-income family. And when you want to have a two-income family with children, a lot of times you're going to require help, uh, either in the form of daycare or 
the cheaper version of daycare is having family members help out. So they're going to move from closer to the ocean into Modesto so that they're closer to family because it's about roughly a 90 minute drive to get from Modesto to any ocean area through these uh, coastal mountains. So not exactly the ideal drive if you're looking for somebody to help out with daycare on a regular basis. And Lacey was able to find work as a substitute teacher and Scott was hired by a fertilizer company and he was earning around $60,000 a year, which equates to roughly $100,000 a year today. Things were going according to plan for the young couple and in spring of 2002, Lacey became pregnant with a boy they had already named Connor and he was due to arrive on February 10th, 2003. Scott's infidelity reared its ugly head again on November 20th, 2002, when a friend of his introduced him to a massage therapist named Amber Fry. The 27-year-old single mother was instantly attracted to the 30-year-old Scott, who once again failed to tell another attractive young woman that he was married. On December 23rd, Lacey and Scott visited her sister at her hair salon around 5.45 p.m. Her sister cut Scott's hair and he offered to pick up a fruit basket the next day for his sister-in-law because he planned to golf at a course near where the basket needed to be picked up. During the trial, the prosecution would state that Scott told many people that he planned to golf on Christmas Eve day. Lacey talked to her mother on the phone that evening around 8.30 and that would be the last time her mother ever heard her daughter's voice. According to Scott, he last saw Lacey around 9.30 a.m. on December 24th. He said she was preparing to bake cookies, watching Martha Stewart, talking about meringues, and that she had planned to walk the dog to the nearby park. Scott said he left to go fishing at the Berkeley Marina for the day. No one else saw Lacey that day. A neighbor found the family dog, a golden retriever named Mackenzie, running through the neighborhood with a muddy leash, but no sign of Lacey or Scott. She returned the dog to the Peterson's backyard at 10.18 a.m. Another neighbor confirmed seeing Mackenzie in the backyard of the house around 10.45 a.m. When police checked the answering machine, there was one message from Scott at 2.15 p.m. that said, Hey beautiful, it's 2.15, I'm leaving Berkeley. He arrived home and found Mackenzie still in the backyard, but no sign of Lacey. Her car was in the driveway and the house was empty. He showered and washed his clothes before checking at some of the neighbors' houses to see if they knew where Lacey was. Those neighbors would later testify that Scott told them he had been golfing all day. Scott then called Lacey's mother Sharon to see if she knew where Lacey was. When her mother said she didn't know, both Scott and Sharon called Modesto PD to report Lacey missing around 6 p.m. Lacey's family and police gathered at the Peterson home, and after the family left, they remembered Scott telling them that he had been golfing all day. The investigation began immediately. Lacey was known to be responsible, and at seven and a half months pregnant, she had no reason to want to disappear on Christmas Eve. Modesto investigators arrived at the Peterson home and located Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses in her purse that had been put into a closet. And so let's just talk about where we're at here. We're going to get further into Scott's relationship with Amber Fry after November 20th uh, as we go on later in the case. Uh, I wanted to get to the actual disappearance here and then we'll kind of backtrack uh, later on because I, I just didn't want to get too bogged down with the details of the affair before we got into 
into the the meat of the of the episode here and so we've got yet again we've covered these many times these missing spouse cases where a significant other comes home to find their significant others quote-unquote missing and we always look at the situation as a whole to kind of decide if this case is a legitimate missing persons case or if there's suspected foul play and the first thing we're going to notice i know i brought it up a lot during the narrative of this but scott tells a lot of people that he's golfing that day and it's going to be important because he wasn't golfing that day and he's going to tell the police and we'll talk about it here in a bit that he's that he headed out fishing at this marina but to everybody else he was golfing and i don't know if that was just something as we're going to find out he didn't think in advance that that two different stories was going to be suspicious but what he ultimately does admit to doing that day to the police is going to be suspicious in and of itself. So he's got these two different stories that we're, we're going to find out about what he was doing that day. And it wasn't just one or two people potentially mishearing what Scott said he'd been doing all day. I mean, everybody knew that Scott loved golf. So it wouldn't have been weird, I guess, if in, let's say he told 20 people that day what he was doing, and out of those 20 people, maybe two people heard instead of him saying I was fishing all day, they just immediately assumed he was golfing and just the way human communication works and the way listening works, maybe they just, their brain filled in golfing instead of fishing, but the family's gonna say he said golfing. He told his sister-in-law the day before while she was cutting his hair that he planned on going golfing. He told all the neighbors that he had been golfing all day and when we got home, he wasn't able to locate Lacey. So, that's going to be one of the first big red flags. Then, as I've mentioned before, we always look at what this person left behind. And in this case, I remember this when this came out really early on, a lot of people assumed there was a possibility that she walked the dog to this nearby park by their house and was abducted, was taken off the street. That would explain the dog walking around loose without anybody around it. And it would explain why her car is still at the home, why her keys, wallet, and everything else are still at the home. But the weird thing is, most people, if you're going to leave to take the dog for a walk, I mean, some people might bring, if it's just a walk, some women might still bring a, a purse with them or something along those lines. Now, if it's some type of an athletic, either jog or speed walk or something where you, you're putting on exercise style clothes, probably not going to bring a purse with you and this is pre everybody having a cell phone now scott did have a cell phone i don't know about lacy at this point there's nothing in the the research about lacy having a cell phone but for sure scott did if lacy didn't have a cell phone it makes sense that that she obviously would not have been carrying it with her but this this purse being in the closet was almost as if somebody wanted to make it look like Lacey left, but they didn't actually want to take the time to get rid of these items right away. Almost as if they had plant, hoped somebody wouldn't find these items, and at a later date they could either plant them somewhere or get rid of them, and then it would be much more suspicious 
if suddenly all of her stuff she's missing and all of her items are missing so police again have some serious red flags going up and at this point they're still going to be viewing this as a missing person but in all missing persons cases that could involve a homicide the police of course are going to be looking at the significant other so in this case we've got Scott Peterson he's in the house and police are talking to him and while there's no true evidence of a crime so far the police are pretty suspicious and Scott's demeanor did not help investigators found him extremely calm and unlike most concerned husbands he asked very few questions they described him as being uninterested in the situation and not at all emotional when asked about the morning he recalled the Martha Stewart and meringue story and police would later say the meringues were not part of the Martha Stewart show that day, but his defense would prove otherwise and claim investigators got tunnel vision on Scott at this point. So again, police are very leery about what they're hearing from Scott, his behavior, and we've talked about it before. You can never fully jump to any conclusions based off people's behavior. Everybody handles critical incidents differently, but it's not just the lack of emotion some people are emotionless some people when they find out a loved one died will not cry some people will cry for an hour you know some people will fall to the floor and go into a full-blown temper tantrum some people will go completely almost catatonic you can't predict how somebody is going to react to any given situation but this whole case is going to be on what we call the totality of circumstances when you look at the entire big picture, what is going on here. And for police, it's not just the lack of emotion that's going on here. It is the lack of question. I think they mentioned in in some of the research that he didn't even ask for the detective's cards or a way that he could contact the detectives if Lacey came home. And these are all situations 99.9% of the time when somebody is dealing with the police and their significant other is missing, if they're not involved, they are going to be asking every question in the world. What do I do now? How, how can I help? How do I get a hold of you guys if I have questions? How do I get a hold of you guys if she comes home? Like, there's just people naturally run through all these different scenarios in their brain. They have so many questions because they, in most cases, they've never faced anything like this before. So the fact that he's uninterested, unemotional, is not asking any questions. Again, it comes back to that Chris Watt style, just cavalier attitude towards the situation that just gave investigators a bad feeling about Scott and about what happened to Lacey. And again, they're going to immediately supposedly watch this Martha Stewart episode from that morning, and they would make a claim that this talk of meringues was not part of Martha Stewart's show. Now, it would come up in trial that apparently it was, and either the police just missed it, or it was you know, such a side mention of these meringues that the, the police just didn't realize that that was what Scott was referring to. And so when it gets to trial, of course, the defense is going to say, hey, as soon as they watch this show and and believe that he was lying he became the one and only suspect and they never looked at anybody else and we're going to find out that's not true but it's just part of the the criminal trial process 
And unlike with his neighbors and families, he didn't tell police that he had been golfing all day. He told them that he had been fishing in his boat off Berkeley Marina. And this, again, investigators became instantly concerned that Scott could have dumped Lacey's body into the ocean, and a search of the marina started immediately. But search efforts were hampered because Modesto is 90 miles from the marina, and there was no evidence Scott had even gone to the marina or where he went fishing once he launched his boat. So again, you have a missing persons case. You don't know where this woman is. You don't know what happened to her. You're talking to a husband that is giving you some really strange vibes. And then he tells you, oh, by the way, the day that my wife went missing, I drove 90 miles to launch a boat into an open body of water. And, you know, police at one side, they have to be like, this guy can't be that dumb that he's that he's going to be telling us that he went fishing the day his wife went missing and, and to dump his body. But at the other side of things, they, they can't ignore the possibility. So they're actually going to rely a lot on and initially, and we've talked about this many times before, initially the, the police don't have a record of dealing with Scott and it's not as if Scott and Lacey had a whole bunch of domestic disputes and reports and investigations. So this is likely Modesto PD's first time dealing with, with Scott in this situation and Oftentimes, police officers are going to rely on those closest to Lacey to determine what's going on. Because there's sometimes where a best friend might know about domestic abuse that family doesn't know about, that hasn't been reported to the police. Sometimes family knows about it, but the missing person has asked the family in the past not to report anything to the police. But after they go missing police are going to find out this information. So they're going to turn to Lacey's family and Lacey's family is actually going to counter some of the police early suspicions about Scott. And this is because they were contradicted by the words of support and character that Lacey's family showed Scott during the initial days of the investigation. Everyone they talked to said Scott loved Lacey and they were the perfect couple and no one could understand why Scott would want to hurt his wife. And then lack of motive hindered the investigation. There's a possibility that Lacey could have been taken off the street while walking the dog, and stranger crimes have happened, and police had to worry about being too focused on Scott and missing other evidence. They also knew that if things went to a trial, they would need to prove they looked into other possible scenarios and suspects. And this is what I mentioned before. We've, we've talked about MMO. Motive means an opportunity. Scott clearly has the means and opportunity to hurt his wife and, and make her disappear, but they don't have a motive. There's Everybody is telling police that Scott's this perfect husband, he loved Lacey, he would never hurt her, there's no indication of domestic violence in the past between the, the couple. There just seems to be no reason why all of a sudden on Christmas Eve, Scott would harm Lacey. And so they have to look and say if there's no motive here we can't put together a crime with no motive so what what are some other potential scenarios as i mentioned before the dog's off of a leash scott tells police that lacy was going to walk the dog to the park later did somebody abduct lacy from the park did something happen to lacy while walking the dog did did lacy decide to leave on her own you know, these all have to be scenarios that get played out and evidence either for or against these scenarios needs to be 
located, weighed out. And if they don't do this when they get to trial, it's going to be that quote-unquote other guy defense that a lot of defendants use. The defense attorney will say, my client didn't do it, so-and-so did, and the only reason so-and-so is not on trial is because the police never looked into the possibility of, of this person being a suspect. They only focused on my client. So to combat that, police early in investigation cannot get locked onto one suspect, one scenario, only one path, turning every piece of evidence to support that path. It is going to backfire at some point, either during the investigation or the trial. So, so they're looking into all these other potential scenarios and suspects. But that all changed on December 30th when Amber Fry called Modesto PD and told investigators that she had been having an affair with Scott. She claimed she did not know Scott was married, and on December 9th, he had told her that he had been married, but his wife died earlier in 2002, and this was going to be his first Christmas alone. Everyone but Amber knew Lacey was still alive at this point, and prosecutors would use his statement to Amber as proof Scott planned the murder of his wife weeks in advance. Amber began cooperating with the investigation immediately. She agreed to make a series of recorded phone calls between her and Scott in an effort to find out what happened to Lacey and the unborn baby. And this is really important. Amber Fry is going to be a, a major part of this case. Obviously, she's providing investigators the motive, why Scott might harm Lacey. And it flies in the face of him being this perfect husband and a guy who's completely head over heels in love with Lacey because obviously the perfect husband or somebody completely in love with their spouse is not going to go out and commit an affair. So police now have this motive. If Scott gets rid of Lacey, he can have an ongoing relationship with Amber. And Amber, this poor woman, is she's head over heels in love with Scott, just like many other women when they first meet Scott. He's this perfect guy, and we're going to talk about how their relationship developed very quickly after they first went on a date in November to the point that Amber thinks that he's this widow that lost his wife earlier that year. He's facing an emotional time with Christmas coming up, his first Christmas alone. And, and then she turns on the news one day and finds out that this man that she's in love with, it's not only that he's married, but the woman that he's married to who's seven and a half months pregnant is now missing and she, and amber had to be thinking the worst because she was the only one of the few people i should say that knew that he had started this new relationship with her and scott had lied to amber and told them he was going to paris for new year's which was a false barrier between the two of them so that he would have a reason not to be around her while his wife's missing persons case was being investigated because their relationship starts very hot and heavy and then Lacey goes missing, and suddenly it's nonstop police at his home. It's her family constantly at, at the home. He's got to look like this concerned husband, so he can't be seen with Amber. Amber obviously can't come over to his place. So he makes up the story that he's traveling for work. He's got to go to France. Uh, he's going to be in Paris for New Year's. So she can call him, but there's no way that they can see each other. And despite being home in Modesto, he told Amber he was near the Eiffel Tower with fireworks going off in the background. Amber asked him if he wanted to be with her, which he stated he did, and he saw a great future for the two of them. And this does 
serve a, a great purpose for the police. It, it wasn't so much of getting Scott to admit to doing anything to Lacey. What they needed was Scott to confirm this affair because, to be honest, in a high-profile case like this, you get a lot of people with mental health issues, uh, a lot of, lack of better terms, crazy people calling to want to get involved in the investigation. And so for all police knew, this Amber Fry could be making all of this up. And if, if that's the case, again, they go back to Scott's this perfect husband. But because of these recorded phone calls, they're going to not only learn that, yes, there clearly is an affair going on between Amber and Scott, but Scott's willing to go to great lengths to lie to someone he has feelings for in order to cover up what is actually going on. So, so again, it's going to serve some purposes. It's not as if Scott's going to come out on these phone calls and say, hey, you know, I, I killed my wife so we could be together. Uh, the, I mean, obviously, if that happened, police would have been elated, but that wasn't the main purpose of these calls. It was just to confirm that the affair was real, that therefore the motive would be real. And Amber did detail her relationships with Scott to the police. She said they went to a hotel for their first date on November 20th, where he ordered champagne and they had sex. On their second date, Scott met Amber's 22-month-old daughter, and he carried the toddler on a hike, and Scott gave the little girl a children's book. On December 3rd, Amber gave Scott a car seat so he could transport her daughter and a key to her place. She asked him to pick up her daughter from daycare, and he happily obliged. That day, they all went out together to pick out a Christmas tree, and they decorated it at Amber's home. So you can see, in just a matter of a couple weeks, um, and being a parent myself, especially when I had little kids, they're, they're your whole world. And it's a lot of trust to put into somebody that you've only met for two weeks to pick up your daughter from daycare and bring, a, bring your daughter to your house. And, and Scott is just, again, obliging. He's being this, this perfect man that Amber needs in her life at that moment. Everything that he provides her appears to be the successful single widow that is ready to embrace the life that she has. He wants to be with her. He wants to spoil her, wants to spoil her daughter. So again, she's falling head over heels for Scott, not realizing that at this point he's married. And on December 6th, the friend that introduced Scott to Amber found out that Scott was married, and he threatened to tell Amber if Scott didn't. Scott told a friend he had been married, but his wife passed away, and he planned on telling Amber that when the time was right. Apparently the time was right on December 9th, and Scott told Amber that his wife had died earlier in the year, and he also lied to her and told her that he had never come close to having children before. So obviously, despite Lacey being alive and seven months pregnant at this time, Scott was willing to tell Amber just about anything to make him sound like the ideal man. And Scott also told her that he wanted to get a vasectomy and didn't want children of his own, but he would help Amber raise her daughter. The timeline given by Amber helped investigators pinpoint a timeline for Scott's actions, and when they looked into his finances, they found that the boat he used to fish on that day, and the day that Lacey went missing, was purchased around December 7th or 8th, which is roughly the time he told Amber his wife was dead. And this boat is going to become a central point of the investigation. 
The boat was a small 15 horsepower fishing boat designed for use on small lakes, ponds, and calm rivers. And when I looked at the pictures of the boat, my family has a similar boat to this one that we use on our lake at our cabin. And it's really fine for fishing on a smaller lake and for enjoying an evening boat ride, but it's not the type of boat I would take on a large lake and definitely not one I would take out on the open ocean. And according to the previous owner of the boat, the boat had never been put into salt water. And so to me, this would be an impulse buy, not someone who wanted to go fishing on the ocean type of a boat. And again, this boat's gonna become a central point of the investigation. It's obviously a part of the, the narrative the police have in regards to the case that the boat was used uh, during the crime. So, but we'll, we'll get back more on the boat later in the trial. Investigators went to Lacey's family on January 15th with evidence of Scott's affair with Amber. And then the family slowly turned against Scott and over time they accepted that he was responsible for Lacey's disappearance. By mid-January 2003, the story had grown into a national media frenzy. The story of a young, pregnant wife going missing on Christmas Eve and the discovery of her husband having an affair was something out of a Hallmark horror movie, but this time it was real life. The 24-hour news cycle ran constant updates about the case, and on January 24th, Amber held a press conference to defend herself due to the onslaught of allegations she had faced from the public over her role in Lacey's disappearance. During the press conference, she told the public that she was not aware that Scott was married until after Lacey went missing and she'd been cooperating fully with the investigation. And this was really important for Amber. Uh, I, I really felt for this woman. She falls for a guy that she thinks is single. Uh, they're only together for a little over a month before this happens. She never asked for this to happen and a lot of people just jumped to the conclusion that she was somehow in on it or that this missing pregnant woman was all her fault and this happens way too often in society where oftentimes it's the woman but is blamed for a situation when clearly this is all scott uh, scott's doing but people immediately assume that this other person in this affair is a homewrecker they're doing this on purpose they know what they're getting themselves into this is just they, they enjoy causing drama or pain in somebody else's life and, and amber had to come out and defend herself and say she was not aware that lacy was alive she wasn't aware that lacy was pregnant she didn't know anything about lacy she had been told that scott's wife had died uh, earlier that year and there, she knew nothing about a pregnancy and despite thousands of volunteer and law enforcement searchers combing the Modesto area and the area around the Berkeley Marina, no sign of Lacey was found. Rewards of $25,000 grew to $500,000 for the safe return of Lacey, but no evidence of her being alive or dead was found in the first few months after she disappeared. On March 5, 2003, her case was officially recognized as a homicide investigation, with investigators no longer having any reason to believe the expectant mother was still alive after two and a half months. It appeared as if the pregnant woman had vanished, and while police and the public had their suspicions about Scott, proving murder in a case with no evidence of a murder victim is an almost impossible task. And we've seen before, I mean, it was with the McStay family, it was several years before they were deemed to be dead and in that case it was the the police thought that they voluntarily disappeared and, and actually they, they sorry they didn't believe the family was dead they believed the family voluntarily disappeared and they refused to believe they were dead 
In this case, it's a very short amount of time, but the situation is a lot different. With Lacey where she was in her pregnancy, I think police had to realize that by March 5th, Connor should have been born. There's going to be a greater chance that they're going to be able to locate this woman and a newborn child. She's going to either go to a hospital, a birthing center. Her, her face has been all over the news for the last two and a half months. And so if she somehow managed to give birth, she'd have to do it on her own. And even then, how is she financially affording to have this new life? There's no activity on her bank accounts. Nobody had heard from her. There was just nothing to indicate that she would voluntarily disappear and stay off the radar for this long, especially with the fact that she should have given birth in, in February. So every case has to be handled differently. And in this case, uh, by March, investigators wanted this to be a homicide. It changes the amount of resources you can put into it. It changes the, the way the investigation is gonna go forward. And it would take until April for the case to gain any traction. And in the next episode, we will cover the discovery of the bodies of Lacey and Connor, the arrest of Scott, his trial, the verdict, and the many appeals and post-conviction changes in the case. So again, as I mentioned, this was one of those cases that very early on, again, it captured the nation's attention. And this was the beginning of the, really the internet age. I mean, the internet by 2000 was pretty prevalent most people had it in their home some people still had dial-up but most people had it in their home they could hop online they could research stuff they would get into message boards chat rooms uh, this is pre-facebook but people were taking to the internet and said this is the birth of the internet detective where people were throwing out theories amber was involved amber actually did it while while Scott was away, you know, people Scott's involved. Other people saying it had to be a, it had to be a kidnapping where she was taken, and that's why the dog was found with the muddy leash running around. Everybody had their own theory. Everybody was presenting whatever evidence was out there in regards to the case. And again, this is the CSI effect, and and what that is, and I'll probably have to explain it in greater detail under a different case. But when the CSI show hit, everybody suddenly thought every single crime was filled with evidence. There was going to be DNA, fingerprints, um, luminol would show blood in every crime scene. There there was no such thing as a as a crime scene with no evidence, and so people expected and it became an issue for juries where there's cases where there could be no dna it's 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 not a dna case it's not a fingerprint case the person was wearing gloves or whatever it might be and the jury sometimes would find people innocent they would acquit them and afterwards when asked like well the, the prosecution didn't present any csi evidence well that's because there wasn't any and it doesn't need to be csi evidence in order for there to be a conviction and it was something that prosecutors actually had to learn to overcome in the early 2000s as a result of the quote-unquote csi effect and i think this was one of those first cases where people really felt like they could solve this on their own through whatever evidence they could find on the internet but 
again, we'll talk about the trial tomorrow. We'll talk about some the, the, some of this evidence that was out there that, that people uh, were talking about and how it was presented in the trial. But that will be continued in tomorrow's episode. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes. And feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.